Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Amen. Welcome, as Tim said, to the second Sunday in Advent. Advent? You probably know it's the four Sundays before Christmas. It's a time when we prepare ourselves. And so last week, I lit what I called the candle of hope. And today, I'm going to light what I'm calling the candle of sacrifice. And I'm going to talk about that by telling you the same story I told you last week, except this from, from another point of view. This from the point of view of Boaz, who is one of the characters, if you remember, from last week. So remember our story. It takes place in the time of the judges. That's a long, long time ago. That's not a good time in Israel. There was a famine. And so a man from the town of Bethlehem, that means he's from the tribe of Judah, he took his family, his wife Naomi, his two sons, and they moved out of Israel to the neighboring country of Moab. And as I told you last week, that's frowned on. You shouldn't leave Israel. God can provide, he can protect people during famines. But they leave and they don't come back. The famine only lasts a few years, but they don't come back and they don't come back and they don't come back. And you expect that what has happened is exactly the reason you shouldn't go live around all these people who don't worship Jehovah because you'll become like them instead of them becoming like you. And probably people assumed that's what happened to them. These guys have become Moabites. They're just gonna stay. Only 10 years after they left, they did come back. Or actually, she came back. Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons left. Only Naomi comes back. It turns out Elimelech and the the, the sons both died there in Moab. And so Naomi has returned home to the town of Bethlehem. She's brought along her daughter-in-law, one of her son's wives, who's a Moabite. She's she's not an Israelite. She's from Moab. His boys married people they weren't supposed to marry. They married people who don't worship Jehovah. But Ruth, her daughter-in-law, has converted to Judaism. She has said to Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'll live where you live. And so they come back after 10 years of being away. They come back sometime around the end of March. It's right as the beginning of the barley harvest. That's the very first harvest. There'll be the barley harvest and there'll be the wheat harvest. There's grapes and fruit trees in there and all. But the the whole harvest time will stretch from the end of March to the, the beginning of August. And they come back during this time, right as the barley harvest is happening, is just starting. There's a man who lived in Bethlehem, a well-known, very wealthy man, whose name was Boaz. Boaz owned a lot of property, and as you can imagine, he had a lot of people out working for him. It's the start of the harvest. And although Boaz was well past retirement age, he was still a guy who liked to be hands-on. He was still a guy who liked to be involved with what was happening. And so he would go out and visit the different people in the different fields. And, you know, he would greet his workers because he knew them and they would greet him because they liked him. He was a good guy to work for. And he knew who worked for him and who didn't. 
So when he saw this young woman back behind his other workers, he didn't think to himself, what's with the straggler? What am I paying for? He went to his foreman and said, who is that? What, what, what's she doing? Why is she here? And his foreman said, oh, haven't you heard the story? That's Ruth, the, the, the Moabite girl that came back with Naomi just a couple days ago. She was here first thing in the morning and she asked me if she could glean. And of course I said yes. And she's worked all morning straight. I think maybe she's taken one tiny little break the whole time. She's just been working out there gleaning. And so Boaz went over to Ruth and interrupted her. And he, he said to her, my daughter, when we finish in this field, you don't need to go looking for another field to glean in. You can just continue to glean in the fields where my workers are. You just follow the harvesters. Whatever field the harvesters go to, you just go along behind them and you can work in that field. No one is going to bother you. And if you're thirsty, because it's hot out, there's always water in those stone jugs you see over there. You're welcome to help yourself anytime you need something to drink. Now, this is really generous. And Ruth, you know, kind of in surprise, you know, she, she actually bows down before him and, and says, why are you doing this? Don't, you, you know I'm a foreigner, right? And Boaz told her, oh, I know who you are. I've heard. I've heard about what you did. I've heard about how you left your father and your mother. I've heard about how you left your homeland and you came to live with a people that you'd never set eyes on before. May the Lord bless you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the God of Israel because you have taken refuge under his wings. And Ruth said to him, thank you. Thank you. you you've been kind to me. I don't even work for you. And so she continued to glean. And when the afternoon meal was served, because Boaz was the kind of guy who served his workers lunch when they're out there working for him, he called Ruth over. He said, my daughter, please come, come sit with us. We have plenty. You'll, you'll enjoy your bread more if you dip it in one of the sauces. And when they put out the meals for all the workers, they served Ruth just as if she worked for him as well. And Boaz, Boaz was the kind of guy who didn't skimp when you were out there in the hot sun working for him. Ruth ate everything she wanted. She was totally full and she still had some left over. She tied it up in a scarf and she went back to the field and started gleaning. And when she went back to the field, Boaz called the guys in charge over. He's like, look, even if she gets a little lost, you know, even if she comes out of the band she's supposed to be gleaning in and starts gleaning in the field, don't embarrass her, just leave her alone. In fact, honestly, if we had more spillage this season, you know, if you dropped more this season, I don't think that would be a problem. And so Ruth spent the day gleaning behind Boaz's men. And somewhere in there, she must have thought to herself, wow, what is this guy paying them? Because he's not getting his money's worth. They drop stuff all the time. Because when she finished, after one day's work, she threshed it. So, you know, she's got these stalks of barley, but you, you got to pull off. All you care about is the grain. She threshed it and got the grain. 
She had 25 pounds of grain. Can you imagine that? Five five-pound sacks of flour. This is pure grain. There's nothing there but barley. She has five five-pound sacks of flour from one day's worth work. How much flour, how much barley do you think two women need to live? Okay, now bread was their staple, so they, you know, they would eat a lot more of it than we do. But still, you don't need 25 pounds of flour a day to feed these two women. I mean, she's like, they're going to eat 10 or 20% of this, and the rest is profit. And she does that day after day after day. Every time they finish in one field, the workers move on to the next. She doesn't know which are Boaz's fields or anything like that. She just follows them. They, they harvest, she follows along behind them. All through the wheat harvest, all, all through the barley harvest, all through the wheat harvest. Maybe they did other grapes, maybe they did trees. We don't know. She just followed them the whole harvest, all the way through to the end of the harvest season. And at the end of the harvest season, there's always a big party, especially if you work for a guy like Boaz. The last day, when you finally bring in that last bit of wheat to the threshing floor, and now there's just these huge mounds of wheat everywhere. I mean, there's tons of work left to be done, don't get me wrong, but you're done with the harvest. There's a big party. And again, Boaz throws a big party for his people. But he's well past retirement age. <laughs> he can't eat and drink like the young guys can anymore. So after a little while, as it starts to get dark and, you know, the harvest, they're in full swing. He just goes off to the other side of the, the threshing floor. This is a big warehouse size area. There's all these huge mounds. He just goes around back behind one of the mounds and lays down and goes to sleep. I mean, He's too old for this, but you know, it's a party. Normally, he's a pretty sound sleeper. But that night, something wakes him up in the middle. You know those times when you just like jerk out and you're just awake, but you don't know what it was. Was it a noise? Was it a dream? Something, something just jerks him out of sleep all of a sudden. And he's looking around, and there's a girl lying at his feet. And so, he says... Who are you? And she says, I'm your servant, Ruth. Please spread the corner of your garment over me. You are a guardian for our family. Now, he knew exactly what she was asking. And he also knew he wasn't actually the guardian for their family. But he said to Ruth, Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I'm honored. Everyone in this town knows what an impressive young woman you are. You could marry anyone you wanted, young or old, rich or poor. Thank you, my daughter. I am honored. I am not actually the guardian for your family. There is another gentleman. That's his role. But here's what I'll do. Tomorrow, I will go and speak to him. I'll talk to him, I'll explain the situation. If he is willing to be your guardian, if he is willing to redeem you, then great. You and your mother-in-law will be taken care of. That's what's important. 
But if he's not willing, I promise you, I promise you I will do everything you are asking me to. So lie down, get some rest. I'll take care of this in the morning. So she did. She lay back down and went to sleep and he lay back down. I'm not sure how much he was sleeping thinking about all this. Um, But before light, he woke her up and sent her back home, of course, with a sack full of grain because that's the kind of guy he was. And, you know, you don't necessarily want people thinking that you were around back behind a big pile of grain with a young woman all night. So before it got light, he sent her away. And then he went back into Bethlehem. He went to the gate, which is this big open area. Of the, it's a literal gate in the wall. And it's also the, the space where business would be conducted. I mean, people are, you're, if you want to meet somebody, they'll come past. They'll, they'll need to come to the gate for something. And so he went to the gate and he waited. And sure enough, the man who was the guardian for Naomi's family came by. And he called him over. He's like, friend, I need to talk with you. This is important. And he sits the guy down. And then because it's important, he actually went and got witnesses. He went and got 10 of the elders of the town and he brought them over. He said, okay, now sit here. This is important. And he told the guy, Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, our relative, she wants to sell his property. Now you're the guardian, so you're first in line. If you will redeem the property, great. But if you don't want to, I do. So tell us officially here in front of the elders what you want to do. And the guy said, well, of course I'll buy it. And then Boaz went on. It's like, good. Now, of course, you know, you're not just buying it, you're redeeming it. I mean, we're going to do this the way the law says. You'll need to marry Elimelech's daughter-in-law, Ruth, so that the first son that's born to her takes over Elimelech's property. You don't keep it. Well, at that point, the other guy's like, oh, wait, hold on. I mean, if that's, if that's what we're doing, then I, 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 I'm out. Sorry, I, I can't do that. You know that. I can't go commingling my estate and Elimelech's estate and that. That just, sorry. If you want to redeem it, great. Go, go for it. And so Boaz did. He announced to everyone there, to all the witnesses, I am going to redeem this property. I'm going to buy the property from Naomi. I will pay her for it. And I will take Ruth as a wife so that the first son born to us, he will inherit Elimelech's property. It will stay in Elimelech's family. And the people said to him, amen. Because of course, that's what the law says. This is the way it's supposed to work. In the time of the judges, nobody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. But Boaz is. This is the way it's supposed to work. Amen. And then they made this really interesting blessing. They say, may this young woman, as she comes into your house, may she be like Rachel and Leah, the very mothers of Israel. By the children you have with this woman, may you become even more famous than you already are in Bethlehem. May you become as famous as Perez, the founder of the tribe of Judah. And so Boaz did exactly what he said. He bought the land, he paid Naomi, he married Ruth, and the Lord in his graciousness enabled her to get pregnant. And she gave birth to a son. They named the boy Obed, and he, of course, was the son of Elimelech. That's the point. He keeps Elimelech's property. And Obed had a son named Jesse, And Jesse had a son named David. 
You know that if you've been listening to the story. So here's how that blessing about Perez worked out for Boaz. Perez had a son named Hezron and Hezron had a son named Ram. Ram had a son named Abinadab and Abinadab had a son named Nashon. Nashon had a son named Salmon and Salmon had a son named Boaz. And Boaz had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse who had a son named David. That David. Turning your Bibles to the book of Ruth. I'm calling this the, the, the candle of sacrifice and I fear I have to ruin all of your preconceived notions about the book of Ruth to explain this to you. So, just willing suspension of disbelief, hang in there with me, and then when we're done, you can go back to the way the movies would portray it. We want this story to be a romance. We want it to be, what do they call it, a a May-September romance, you know, an older guy and and a younger woman, and we want this to be a love story. And you can't want that to understand this story, right? This is not a love story. And whoever wrote it went to great pains to make sure no one thought that. Now, please, I'm not saying they weren't madly, wildly in love with each other. I'm just saying the way the story is written, they don't ever go there. We never know what they think about each other emotionally. We know Boaz is impressed with what Ruth has done and Ruth is grateful for what Boaz has done. But we never know how they feel each other, feel about each other. And that is very intentional on the author's part. Because when you're in love, making sacrifices seems normal. Drive 12 hours to spend 12 minutes with you? Of course. I drive 12 days to spend 12 minutes with you. Right? Great sacrifices are normal in that in love phase. Boaz is making incredible sacrifices throughout this story. And until the second to the last verse, until the last sentence in the Hebrew text, he gets nothing back. Absolutely nothing. Now, I'm a word guy, okay? Again, I, I don't read the, 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 the you know, what, what is it talk about? The body language and the subtle clues and things like that. Like if you're crying hysterically, I'll probably miss that because I just don't read body language that well. We have a joke in my family. If you want to know how somebody's doing, don't ask me, ask my wife. Because the conversation between us goes something like Elizabeth to Jeff, you know, how is so-and-so doing? Jeff to Elizabeth, oh, she's fine. Elizabeth to Jeff, she's sobbing hysterically in the bathroom. I don't think she's fine. Jeff to Elizabeth, well, I just talked to her and I asked her how she was and she said, I'm fine. So she said she's fine. What's the problem? I'm a word guy, okay? So I get the words. And the words they use for Ruth and Boaz always separate them. Whenever It talks about Ruth. She's called a young woman. This is a woman between late teens and about 30. It's a woman who's marriable. She's gone through puberty, but she hasn't had kids. Okay, so Ruth is, she's probably late 20s. If they were in Moab for 10 years and knowing when people get married and all that, she's probably mid to late 20s. 
Okay? When they talk about Boaz, he's a man of standing. He has great wealth, all these things. Right? He is at least a Limelech's generation. Quite possibly, he's the generation above that. All right? the, the, the ancient Jewish scholars, and by ancient, I mean 500s BC, right? When, when Israel went into exile, all these things that used to be passed on orally, father to son, mother to daughter, they started writing them down like crazy because they were afraid they were gonna get assimilated by the Babylonians. Like their kids are starting to speak Aramaic instead of Hebrew. So they're writing all of this oral information down and by God's grace, we have it. You've probably heard of it. Things like the Talmud, the Mishnah. Um, when they wrote their, their texts, they would write notes in the margins. Sometimes they'd have arguments in the margins over the centuries. As one guy writes this and the next guy 100 years later writes, I don't think that's true, I think it's this. And we have all of that. The ancient Jewish scholars argue over whether Boaz is 60 years older than Ruth or 100 years older than Ruth, right? He's either one or two generations older than him. Every time he speaks to her, he calls her my daughter. That's every time. That's important. One, because he is a, he, he's a guardian. He's a big, important dude within their clan. You've got the tribe of Judah, and then within that, you've got smaller clans, and then within that, you've got the individual family, like Elimelech's family, Boaz's family. He's a big deal in their clan, and he is accepting her. She's not Jewish. She's not a Hebrew, but she has converted. And he calls, calling her by a familial name, my daughter, he is accept, he's saying, I accept you into our clan. You are absolutely a Jew. And it also puts distance and space between them, okay? Older guys who are getting together with younger women, don't call them my daughter. That doesn't happen in our world. It didn't happen in their world, right? He is so careful. Even at the end, we'll get to that in a minute, when she has just asked him to marry her, what does he call her? Not my dear, not my darling, my daughter. The writer is so careful to make sure we understand the difference between these two people. The difference in wealth, the difference in status, the difference in power. It's not written as a love story. Now, I hope that in eternity, Boaz comes to find me and says, are you the dude that said I didn't love my wife? <laughs> Seriously? Like, you got that out of this? The, like, great, amen. But to understand what Boaz is doing, you've got to understand he's not getting anything back. Throughout this story, he loses. He loses and he loses and he loses. I told you last week, the child that's born, Obed, is a type of Christ because he's a redeemer. That's what he's called at the end of the story. He will be Naomi's redeemer. When Boaz is gone, he will take care of her. And that's what Jesus does for us. He redeems us. Boaz is also a type of Christ because he sacrifices and he sacrifices and he sacrifices. He is also a redeemer in the story. We don't know what it's gonna cost Obed to redeem Naomi someday, but we know what it costs Boaz to redeem Ruth and Naomi because it happens over and over and over again. This girl comes into his field and takes 25 pounds of grain out every day day. Right? That's his grain. That's grain he, 
paid to have planted. He paid for the seed. It's in his field. She is treated as if she is his employee. She is given all the same rights and privileges and protection as all his employee. He, she's fed. She's watched over. She gets water carried for her. I mean, heck, she's got guys who are intentionally dropping things because the law in gleaning was one pass, just one. Anything you missed, you have to leave. Anything you drop, because these guys, they're, they're grabbing whatever it is. Barley, in this case, got a knife, and they're just whacking it off. They're grabbing the whole plant, and they're turning, and they're dropping it into the basket. It's these big, like, wicker, like, think of it as like a shield, almost, only it's made of wicker. They're walking right behind them, and you're just doing this as fast as you can, all day, just grabbing the plant, right? And when this fills up, then they would trade. There'd be another, usually it's girls doing this, another girl behind him with an empty one, and this one would go out and go take it and dump it, and, and you're just doing that all day. But as you can imagine, it's easy to spill. You trip up, boom, drop, dump, the whole, dump all of it on the ground. Or you're doing, you know, you're doing this and you miss, or you don't look back and realize they're changing, or it is easy to drop. And if you're obeying the law, everything you drop stays on the ground. You cannot pick it up. And Boaz is doing that. He has instructed his people to harvest according to the law, even though it costs him. In fact, he's instructed his guys to drop more than usual to make it easy on her. Because if they leave stuff, you know, if, they, if they miss one, then she can come along, but she's got to whack it and put it somewhere and all. He's like, cut them off and then miss the basket. Drop it. Then all she's got to do is come along behind and pick it up. Every day, this girl takes 25 pounds of grain out of his fields. She is fed, she is protected, she is given water, she is treated exactly like she's his employee, and he gets nothing for it. He gets absolutely nothing for her being, acting as if she was his employee. In fact, he loses 25 pounds of grain every day. He loses his crop. Every day she takes that away. In chapter three, at the beginning, when Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, says to her, you know, get washed, this is verse three, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, right? They're selling 80 to 90% of what she is gleaning. Poor people don't have best clothes and poor people certainly don't have perfume. Like both of these things are expensive and they've got them. Like they are doing really, really well. And when Ruth comes to Boaz, on the threshing floor. And she says to him, spread the edge of your garment over me. You are a guardian for our family. That word guardian, it shows up, guardian redeemer. We translate it. We're not sure how to translate it because it doesn't exist in our world, but it's a legal term. It is someone who is obligated by the law to take care of a family member when they're in trouble. When she says to Boaz, you are a guardian for our family, she's invoking the law. You must do this. This is what is right. This is what is legal. We would, what we want her to say is, I see you making googly eyes at me across the field. I feel the same way. Let's make it official. Maybe they made googly eyes every day. What the author is telling you is that she is saying to Boaz, 
you have taken care of me and my mother-in-law the entire harvest season. I mean, wow, has he taken care of them. He has made sure that they have what they need to live and five times more than that, at least, maybe 10 times more than that. You've done this for us all harvest. Would you please continue to do that for the rest of our lives? Make that. That's what she's asking him to make official. You are a guardian. And what he says to her is, actually I'm not, but I will. I promise you, I will. Because a guardian has to redeem the property. What that means is he will buy it, but he will also marry the woman. Because in Israel, land is life. And so God has set up this system where if you get poor and you sell your land, every 50 years it comes back into the family. You actually can't sell land in God's kingdom. You just rent it. And so the law says, if you, if you want to buy land, count up how many years you've got until the 50th year. It's called the year of Jubilee. Until the year when you've got to give the land back to its owners. So if I sell you my land in year 10, obviously you got 40 years of harvest you're going to get out of that land. It's worth a lot more than if I sell it to you in year 47, when you've got three years of harvest left in that land. You can't sell land. It always goes back to the original family. You can't impoverish your family. There can never be generational poverty in Israel. Every 50 years, everything resets. I mean, every seven years, all debts are canceled. But seven sevens, the next year, 50, everything resets. Even if your father or grandfather completely ruined the family, you will get it all back. You get to start over again. That's what it means to redeem the land. You buy the land. You invest in the land. Anybody who's run a business knows the first couple of years, you don't make money. You put money into that land, preparing it, getting it ready, starting to, to, to grow things, seeing what grows there, what needs to be done. You invest in that land, but you have married a girl from that family. And the first son you have by her is not your son. It's not your family it's the guy's family who died. Because if a guy dies with no kids, then what do you do with his land? How does it stay in the family? If he has sons, it goes to the sons first. Because a patrilineal system, women join their husband's family. If there's no sons, then it becomes a matrilineal system. The husband joins the wife's family. So Elizabeth is an only child. She Elizabeth, was Elizabeth Sanford. She married me and became Elizabeth Jansen. In this world, I would have become Jeff Sanford. I would have continued the line of the Sanfords because I have a younger brother, Scott. Scott would continue the line of the Jansons. That's how it's supposed to work. If you have no children, male or female, if you've got nothing, then a relative is supposed to marry a woman within your family line and any children become the son of that guy. When Obed is born, he's Obed ben Elimelech. Ben means son of, that's his name. Your name is your name and the name of your dad. And sometimes more than that if you need to specify further. I, in this world, my dad is Tom. I would be Jeff ben Tom. My boys would be Nick and Chris ben Jeff. My daughter would be Christina bot Jeff. Bot means daughter. That's how you know people. Obed is Obed ben Elimelech. What they bless, bless Boaz with 
when they say, through the women, the offspring this woman gives you, may you become as famous as Perez, the founder of our tribe. That's not the first child. It's offspring plural. The first son is a Limelech son. And when he comes of age, which is usually about 13 in their world, he gets all that land. All that money you spent on the land, it goes to him. Any harvest, any money that you got from that land, you're expected to keep separate for him. That's why the other guy won't do it. Because it's so expensive to legally redeem something. You're gonna buy it, you're gonna invest in it, you're gonna get ready. When Ruth has a son, the clock starts ticking. Because when Obed turns the age of manhood, which again, it's different at different times in Israel's history, but it's usually around 13. We call it, we call it the bar mitzvah today. When he has his bar mitzvah, it's his land. It's his property. It's his houses, his fields, his workers. Everything you did to that land goes out. Like up until now, Boaz has been supporting Ruth and Naomi out of his income. The crops that are coming in, he's letting them have 25 pounds of it. Now he's got to start supporting them out of his savings because he's got to start getting that property ready for Obed ben Elimelech. Obed, the son of Elimelech, who will inherit it, keep it, it will stay in his family. When they say, may you be famous by the offspring, they're talking about all the kids that Ruth has after the first one. That's why be like Leah and Rachel. The two of them together had like eight kids. May you have a bunch of kids and be famous because the first one's not yours. So what happens to Elimelech's family? They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's pretty cool in this world. Elimelech is in the line of David. And what happened to Boaz? That, that, That blessing that they gave to Boaz. They go through the line of Perez. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. What are you going to say next? Who were Boaz's other kids? What were his other sons? Obed is Obed ben Elimelech. What happens to Boaz's other kids? Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. He's not Obed ben Elimelech. He's Obed ben Boaz. And in this world, that's huge. Boaz gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. And throughout this whole story, he gets nothing back. In fact, what he gets near the end of it is, hey, would you please give even more? Would you make sure that this is ready? Would you invest in all this land, get it ready, and then give it away? It will leave your family. He does all of this and he is asked to do more. And he says yes and thank you throughout the whole thing. He gives and he gives and he gives and gives. And it's not till the end of the last sentence that you find out that the guy, the guy who should have done this is never even named. That's such a slight in Hebrew literature. He's not He's not, he doesn't have a name. He's not the son of anybody. He doesn't have a family. I mean, that's just like smack. You blew it. That guy could be in the line of David and the line of Christ, but he's not. Why? He didn't want to lose money. It would have been expensive to do what was right. 
And he was not interested in that. And so he is a nameless nobody that is mocked in this story for being a moron. And Obed, Obed was the son of Boaz and Jesse was the son of Obed and David was the son of Jesse. And you run that down in Luke and you find out that Mary is a descendant of Obed ben Boaz and Joseph is a descendant of Obed ben Boaz and Jesus on both sides of his family line is a descendant of Obed ben Boaz. Obed gives and gives and gives and gives and gives this entire story and he never gets anything back until the last sentence. But wow, does he get it back. His son is credited to him even though he is going to inherit the land, he is going to take it. He had, Obed appears four or five times in scripture. He always has the same name, Obed Ben Boaz. Because sometimes doing what is right costs. We talked last week about having hope. This week we're talking about sacrifice. Sometimes you got to sacrifice. It's Christmas. We know the sacrifices Jesus made for us. Now you know the sacrifices Boaz made to keep the law, to do what was right. Where do you need to sacrifice this Christmas? If Christmas is about hope, it is also about sacrifice because that's where Jesus is going. That's why he was born. He is not born to get rich, to be powerful, to be important. He is born to die for us. Where do you need to give this Christmas? Where do you need to be like Boaz? I don't care about the cost. The cost isn't the issue. This is right. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance to do what the law of God requires. I will absolutely do everything you ask. Where do you need to sacrifice? Where do you need to give? Because that's part of preparing ourselves for Christmas too. You know, so much of Christmas is about getting, (laughs) getting presents, getting things, having the holiday spirit, people coming in, getting to see people. Where do you need to give as well? Because Boaz, folks, Boaz is gonna sit so close to Christ, I'm gonna need binoculars to see him. This guy acts like Jesus and he never asks for a thing back. He may not even have known it. Like this is clearly written at least in the time of David, which is a couple generations later. He may not even have known that no one calls his son Obed ben Elimelech. They always call him Obed ben Boaz because he's the son of Boaz, the man who did everything he was supposed to do, even though it cost him. Where do you need to prepare yourself this Christmas? By giving, by sacrificing, by saying no. Where do you need to give instead of get? So I'm gonna gonna pray for us. I mean, that's how I always end. I'm gonna ask God's spirit to speak to us. Are there places where we need to give? We need to not think of this about, okay, what am I gonna get from this? which is what the unnamed guardian does. We need to think about this the way Boaz thinks about it. What can I do? What can I give? I mean, Boaz is, you know, in our parlance today, he's not just given 10% off his excess. He's digging into his savings to get this kid set up so that 
he will inherit all of Elimelech's property and it'll be ready for him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. I mean, you did this. What Boaz did was expensive, but it didn't cost him his life. What you did was expensive and it did cost you your life. Thank you. Jesus, I want to be like Boaz. I think my brothers and sisters do too. We want to be like a man who does what is right, even when it's expensive, who seems to be grateful for the chance. We want to be people who are rewarded by you. We don't want to be like the guardian who says, no, I'm not doing that. That would cost me. And who misses out on this incredible opportunity to be in the line of the greatest king of Israel, to be in the line of the Messiah, the Savior himself. But Jesus, where do we need to be like Boaz? Where do we need to say yes to sacrifice and giving so that we do not miss the opportunity? Where do we need to be willing to give instead of, no, I'm, I'm gonna keep thanks. But what do you have for us, Holy Spirit, where we need to say yes, knowing full well it will cost us? Jesus, speak to us. As we take the bread and the cup now, as we sing afterwards, speak to us, Jesus. If there are places where you want us to say yes to giving, you want to say yes to sacrificing, to giving ourselves, our money, our time, whatever it is, places where you want us to say yes to giving instead of getting or giving instead of standing on the side like this other guardian did, then speak to us. Tell us, Lord. Remind us. We want to do it. We pray all this in your name. Amen.